Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1. You want to look this morning at verses 7 through 17, Zechariah 1, 7 to 17. If you're having trouble remembering where Zechariah is, find the book of Matthew and go left. Uh, Matthew backwards, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. And that's probably about as far as I can go backwards on the books of the Bible, but there you go. Zechariah chapter 1. Let me read the first those uh, verses, verses 7 to 17. And then let us pray and ask the Lord to guide us. Would you follow along as I read? On the 24th day of the 7th, excuse me, of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And so they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long? Will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah which you have been, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the living word of the living God. Would you bow with me and let us ask him to give us insight and worship through this word. Our Father, we thank you for your revelation of yourself to us. Even as this vision indicates, we could not know you or even know of you except that you have exposed yourself to us. And what a magnificent revelation that is. Even as you revealed yourself in this vision to Zechariah and the people of Judah. So you have revealed yourself to us 
as a God of compassion and comfort. Even as Judah and more broadly Israel lived in a perverse day, even as they lived under oppression, wickedness, opposition, so we find ourselves likewise at times in similar circumstances. And the God who comforted them is the God who comforts us. And so, Father, might we find comfort, hope, strength in this revelation of our great God this morning. Would you guide us as we study? Would you transform us as we hear Might we not only hear audibly, Lord, but might our hearts respond to this gracious revelation of Yourself to us. And, oh, Father, would You be kind, so kind, to encourage and sanctify us by this Word, Your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to think with you this morning about Zechariah's first vision and the reality of the God of comfort for a day of trouble. We live in troubling days, don't we? One writer has said, life is full of disappointments. The biggest catastrophes, wars and tsunamis, and the smallest inconveniences, lower back pain and unfulfilled desires infuse unrest into our lives. Trials snatch peace from us, Aaron Menikoff writes. As an example, consider the story of Meg, who was the mother of two children, Peggy and Joey, both born a few years apart with cystic fibrosis. Joey died at the age of 12. Peggy endured into her 20s before dying at the age of 23. Meg was the faithful wife of a faithful pastor, and she wrote a letter to a friend explaining how her daughter Peggy died. She says this, The weekend before she went into the hospital for the last time, Peggy came home all excited about a quotation from William Barclay that her minister had used. She was so taken with it that she had copied it down on a three-by-five card for me. Endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. After Peggy had been in the hospital for a while and things were not going well, she looked around at all the paraphernalia of death to which she was attached, and she said, Hey, Ma, remember that quotation? And she looked again around at all the tubes and stuck the tip of her tongue out of the corner of her mouth, nodded her head, and raised her eyes in excitement at the experiment to which she was committing herself. I was sitting beside her bed a few days before her death when suddenly she began screaming. I will never forget those shrill, piercing, primal screams. Nurses raced into the room from every direction and surrounded her with their love. It's okay, Peggy, one said. Jeannie's here. The nurses stroked her body. Eventually, with their words and their touches, they soothed her, though time went on and the screaming continued, and so they could not ultimately soothe her. I've rarely seen such compassion. 
Wendy, Peggy's special nurse friend, tells me there isn't a nurse on the floor who does not have at least one patient she would give one of her lungs to save if she could. So it's against this background of human beings falling apart. Nurses can only stay on that floor for so long because they cannot do more to help. It is against that background that God, who could have helped, looked down on a young woman devoted to Him, quite willing to die for Him to give Him glory, and decided to sit on His hands and let her death top the horror charts for cystic fibrosis deaths. You feel the pain in that woman's letter, don't you? You hear the questions. You hear the hurt. You sense the longing for comfort. Comfort for her daughter. Comfort for her. Comfort for her family. From where will comfort come? Where's the hope? Where's the strength? It was a different kind of suffering. But the Israelites also had questions about their suffering. Israel had been taken into captivity in 722 B.C. by Assyria. The two southern tribes of Judah had followed into captivity roughly 100 years later, 605 B.C., then again 597 and the third departure. In 586 B.C., they went into Babylon, Babylon having succeeded Assyria Seventy years after that, the nation of Israel started to return to her land, but they still faced oppression. They, they still faced opposition. And in their lingering hurt and in the midst of that opposition, while they'd started to rebuild the temple, they just stopped. Fearful, afraid, uncertain, and didn't complete what they'd begun. Zechariah addresses them in this book with a series of prophecies to exhort them to finish the temple. And in this morning, we're going to start a a vision section, eight visions that Zechariah has on one night, eight revelations from God about his character, eight admonitions to continue the work because of the God that was behind them, eight admonitions of encouragement. And the first of these is an exhortation that is based on the comfort of God. What Zechariah reveals about God in this vision is this. God has sufficient comfort for His people's troubles. God is adequate, strong, able, comforting, compassionate, gracious, kind, caring, enough to overwhelm every problem of every person that is His. God has sufficient comfort for His people's troubles. This morning, we consider Zechariah's first vision. We're going to follow a similar pattern in all of these visions because they, they follow that same structural pattern. We want to consider first what Zechariah saw. Then we want to consider what the vision meant. And then we want to understand what the vision teaches about the nature of God. Consider first... What Zechariah saw, what Zechariah saw. Verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, 
the second year of Darius. The first admonition that Zechariah gave is in the eighth month of the second year. It's indefinite. We find that in verse 1 of this chapter. It's indefinite what day. So we don't know exactly how much time has lapsed between that first speech in verses 1 to 6 and this vision revelation in verse 7. But roughly three months have passed from the eighth month to the eleventh month. We do know, actually, the date. If you want to figure out the date, the 24th of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, it's February 15, 519 B.C. And uh, we know that with accuracy. Um, It is the first of eight visions that Zechariah receives from the Lord. We understand that all of these visions, starting here in verse 7 of chapter 1 through chapter 6 verse 10, all eight of those visions came on one night. So Zechariah was busy that night. It is two months after Haggai's last vision. So you remember that Haggai, the book immediately preceding Zechariah, and Zechariah were contemporaries addressing the same issue in Judah at the very same time, though slightly different time frames as far as months go. So This vision comes exactly two months after Haggai's second vision and last vision. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 20. The date is significant because it is exactly five months after Haggai's first vision and the the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. So we find in chapter 1 of Haggai, in verse 14... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people to work on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So five months after they had begun rebuilding the temple, The foundation had been laid 15 years previously, had laid dormant. They'd been called to repentance. They had responded in faith. And now, evidently for five months, they've been experiencing and evidencing repentance. And they were moving forward with the building of the temple. What did Zechariah see? Verse 8. I saw at night... That little phrase I saw at night is a phrase that he's going to use throughout these visions. And it is a a demonstration that he is seeing something that's not a dream, but it is a divine revelation from God in the form of vision. So though he uses the word night, don't assume that he means I was dreaming. We know from everything that he says in these chapters, he is not asleep, he's not comatose, he is not unconscious, he is active, he is engaged, he's talking, he's thinking, he's processing. He has probably never been more alert than he is, a, than he is in receiving these visions. So the visions came at night, but that doesn't indicate that they're, that he's dreaming. I think perhaps also he would have us to understand A figurative understanding of it as well. Though it came literally at night, there's also a figurative sense. And it came at night, it came in the darkness of Judah's history. So there's darkness inwardly. And for that darkness, there is revelation that comes from God. And what did he see? In all honesty, 
the first time I read this, I pulled out a a pad and a pen and I started writing down and trying to sort out who's who in this story and where are they and what are they doing? And I thought, okay, I'm not sure. I think it's going this way after finishing reading it two or three times. And I thought, ah, the commentators all straighten it out for me. Uh, not so fast. The commentators can't agree either. Uh, there's a little bit of confusion here. So what does he see? He sees a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing. Okay, so there's a guy on a red horse... And he's standing. Does that mean that he's on the red horse standing up on the horse? Does it mean that the horse is standing somewhere among the myrtle trees? I think that's probably what it is. I don't think he's standing on the stirrups of the horse. I think he simply means the horse is standing in the myrtle trees and this man is riding on that horse. And then behind him are three more horses, a red one, a sorrel horse, and a white horse. And then, verse 10 tells us, the man who was standing among the myrtle trees. Well, who's that man? Because he's assuming that we understand who the man is, and we don't know for sure. Is that man the same man that was standing in verse 8 on the horse that was standing among the myrtle trees? Or is it someone else? We also have an angel that showed up in verse 9. And then we have an angel of the Lord in verse 11 and verse 12. Is the angel of the Lord the rider on the horse? Some say yes. Is the angel of the Lord the same as the angel, other angel? Some say yes. Most say no. Um, Is the angel in verse 9 and verse 10, is that the same angel? Is that is that angel the man who is riding on the horse? See how confusing it gets? And then you add to that, what about all the different color horses? So you've got a red one, a white one, a sorrel one. Red must mean blood, right? White means victory. And there are some writers that go on about that. What about the myrtle trees? What do the myrtle trees mean? Well, the myrtle branches were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. So maybe he's alluding to that. Um, I think this is, I think we need to take this like a parable. And so parables, the basic rule of interpretation is never push the details. The details are there just to embellish, to give a full picture. And I think that's what's going on here. Perhaps... There is meaning behind the color of the horses, but there's nothing in the text to tell us that there's meaning of the color of the horses. I think he's just seeing in technicolor. And he's telling us this is a vivid vision. And so he's giving us some of those details. So don't don't push those details too much. I do think that there are two different angels. I think there's an angel that explains and we're going to see this angel all the way through these visions. So he's going to keep popping up. We're going to see him again in the second vision next time in verse 19. And then we're going to see him spread around throughout the rest of these stories as well. And I think the angel of the Lord is separate from him. I don't think the angel of the Lord is the rider on the red horse. I think the angel of the Lord is the angel of the Lord. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, it would just be odd for the angel of the Lord 
to be answering himself. So he asks the question of the writer and then it would be odd for him to be answering and likewise of the angel as well. So I think there are four riders on four horses. There's an angel. There's an angel of the Lord. And then there is the Lord of hosts who interjects himself as well. The details might be confusing. They might be debated. But the message of the vision itself is clear. Says one writer, the only point Zechariah needed to communicate was the heavenly origin of the messengers and the message they delivered. That's the point. God has something to say. And it's coming through his messengers, the angel and the angel of the ho- of, uh, and the Lord of hosts. And that's the meaning of the vision that we're going to get to in just a moment. So don't get wrapped up in the details. Don't get too burdened by, well, I don't, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this means. Just look at the main point. God is revealing and exposing something about health in this vision. What is he exposing about himself? That's where we come to the meaning. If you don't understand what's going on, I took great comfort from verse 9. Then I, Zechariah, said, My Lord, what are these? (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) What's going on? Help me understand. And to whom is he addressing himself when he says, Lord, simply a word, we might use the word sir. Um, He's referring, verse 9, to the angel. And the angel who was speaking with me, said to me, I'll show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So there we have the meaning of the horses and the riders. God has sent them to patrol the earth, to examine the earth. The word patrol is similar to what we would use for a patrol. They're just going and they're watching. They're looking. They're going back and forth all through the earth. I can't verify this, but it seems to me four riders, four directions on the compass. I think they went north, south, east, and west um, to just check out the whole earth. What's going on? What's the status of the earth? They're examining carefully and precisely. What's significant is what they are doing and for whom they are doing it, right? These are those whom the Lord has sent. They're on God's mission. This is not something they're doing for themselves, but they are doing for the Lord. They're on a mission for Him. They're under the authority of Yahweh, covenant God of Israel. They're examining constantly, extensively, the condition of the earth. Remember, they're looking out after the condition of the earth under Darius. We've already been introduced again to Darius, verse 7. This is the second year of Darius. Darius was the ruler of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia had succeeded Babylon, which had succeeded uh, Assyria. He, uh, The nation had gone back under Babylon, and Cyrus begun going back to the land of Israel in 536. Uh, excuse me, in 539, and, uh, or excuse me, in 536, and in, um, Terry, read your notes. They went back to the land in 536. In 539, Cyrus had defeated Babylon. And so they had gone back under Cyrus. Cyrus had then died and been supplanted or replaced, rather, by Darius. Darius had been on the throne now for two years as Zechariah gives this prophecy, and his empire was vast. You remember this? 
from a couple of weeks ago, right? So at the far east, his his um, his empire extends into India. To the north, it goes to what is currently Kazakhstan. To the west, it goes as far as Greece in Europe, in Libya, in Africa, and down through Egypt. It's a tremendously significant empire. He's powerful, and he is ruling authoritatively. And we know that he rules authoritatively because they have been going through this land. They've been patrolling the earth. And here's their their report. Verse 11. We've patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. In spite of all the land that Darius controls, all the different people groups that don't naturally belong to Medo-Persia, everything is quiet. It's peaceful. He's a tremendously authoritative and powerful ruler. Now you read those words and you, you read, all the earth is peaceful and quiet, and, and you want to go, oh, good news. Except think about it for just a moment. Darius had conquered all these different people groups who weren't Medo-Persian. And nobody's fighting back. Everybody is submissive. No one is resisting. There are no skirmishes. There are no wars. There are no battles. He is ruling with absolute authority and dominance over the entire world. No one can resist him. No one can resist his power. So when the Israelites read this word, they're probably thinking, well, that's not good news like we thought it might be. In fact, it might be bad news. It's a reminder of the weightiness of Israel's problem, of Judah's problem in particular. They're back in the land. And while they had received blessing from the Medo-Persian rulers in going back, there is still much opposition. And if you want details of that opposition, go back and read Ezra 4 and 5 this afternoon or this week, and it'll tell you just some of the opposition they're facing. It was enough opposition that made them throw up their hands and say, we stop, we quit on this building of the temple. And the opposition that Israel faced is just a reminder that because, or even though people righteously follow God, Even though in the New Testament we follow Jesus Christ, it does not mean that God's people will always have a life of ease. Life isn't always easy. There are hardships in this world. There are circumstances we don't understand. I was thinking this week of Mark chapter 4. It was because, because I was reading it one day for my Bible reading. Mark chapter 4. Evening comes, Jesus has been teaching, ministering the word. He says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake, of of, the Sea of Galilee. And they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. There arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves are breaking over the boat so much that the boat's already filling up. And where's Jesus? He's with the disciples bailing water, right? Nope. He's sleeping soundly in the bottom. And they woke him. They said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And you can just imagine the disciples, right? 
all the questions that are racing around in their heads. Why did he send us out on the lake when he knew the storm was coming? Why isn't he, why isn't he helping us with the storm? Why, why isn't he helping try and keep the, the boat afloat? Why isn't he helping us try and get to the shore? Where, where is Jesus? Why isn't he helping us? Why, why isn't he ministering with us? Why isn't he doing anything about the storm? We know he can perform miracles. Why isn't he doing anything? Don't you care? They got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. All this stuff's going on in the lives of the disciples. They're just overwhelmed. You know what that's like, don't you? There are troubles in this world, circumstances we don't understand. All, the, the question why is just constantly on our minds. Why? Why? Why the medical trials and why the financial pressures and why the relational difficulties and why, why the sin? Why my sin? Why, other, why the sin of others against me? All those questions and dozens more were true in Israel and they're true today. So where was the help for Israel? Where's the help for us? Where's help in this perverse world that is against us? That is against biblical godly truth? Where's our help? I want you to see what God's, excuse me, what Zechariah's vision teaches about God's comfort. We were introduced to the angel of the Lord, verse 11. Verse 12, that same angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? I want you to notice the first comfort here in verse 12. God comforts by providing an intercessor for God's people. That title, Angel of the Lord, is used fairly frequently in the Old Testament. It's used 58 times in the Old Testament. It's used six times in the book of Zechariah. Often, though not always, it appears to be either the presence of himself or a pre-incarnate Christ. The Angel of the Lord we know, was often terrifying to those who saw him. Think back to the story of Balaam and the donkey that saw the angel of the Lord before Balaam did, and the donkey was terrified, and Balaam was beating the donkey, and then finally his eyes were open to see the angel of the Lord, and then he was terrified too. The angel of the Lord is exceedingly powerful. Isaiah 37 tells us that the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Midianites in one night. That's astounding. We know from Zechariah chapter 3 that he is able to forgive sins. And so it seems that at least this incident of the angel of the Lord is more than just an angel. I take it that this particular angel, as in the rest of this book, is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Turn the page over to chapter 3. Another vision we'll see in a few weeks. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. There he is again. 
and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord, I take it there that the word Lord there is a reference to the angel of the Lord. It's just a shortened form. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's interesting because we know from Jude 9 that even Michael, the archangel, doesn't rebuke Satan or the demons. But here, the Lord himself, this angel of the Lord, does rebuke Satan. That indicates he's more than just an angel. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, verse 3, Joshua is clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Watch verse 4. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. What does that mean? And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. What's he done? He has removed sin and he has imputed righteousness. Who does that? Jesus Christ. So I take it that the angel of the Lord in chapter 3, and almost certainly in chapter 1, is the pre-incarnate Christ. And watch what the pre-incarnate Christ does. They're asking a question. What are the horses and the riders What have they found? And the angel of the Lord said, not to Zechariah, not to the angel, not to the riders. He goes to the Lord of hosts and prays, intercedes for the people. And the Lord of hosts, angel of the Lord, says to the Lord of hosts, how long Will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? God, when will you be compassionate? You've been indignant these 70 years. The pre-incarnate Christ says to his father. You have disciplined the nation of Israel for these 70 years. So they've been in Babylon for 70 years. And the question is, when will this end? Will you relent and will you restore compassion? Now, we know from Jeremiah 25 and 29 that the, that the uh, captivity in Babylon was only going to last for 70 years. And indeed, the nation had begun going back after 70 years. But the, the angel of the Lord doesn't see the return as the full completion Of the promise that was made to Jeremiah. Because he says even though they're back. It still seems like there's more compassion. That needs to be had. I think what he's referring to here is Jeremiah 29.14. Where God says I will be found by you declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes. And will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I will not only bring you back, but I will restore all your fortunes. And for the sake of the people, the Lord, the angel of the Lord intercedes 
and says, God, when are you going to be compassionate and fully restore all your promises? What's notable is that he makes this request on behalf of both Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Both Jerusalem, the place of worship, the place where the temple should be built and had not been built yet, and all the cities of Judah. In other words, the whole country, all the tribes under Judah. When will this be restored? Where will there be full restoration of the nation and of worship? What's noticeable and notable about this episode is that Israel has an advocate pleading her case. She's not alone. Now they've got people talking in their ears in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem saying, who makes you think you can build that temple? What makes you think you can do it? And what Zechariah is revealing is you have a divine intercessor who's asking for you and pleading your case. And brother and sister, what is true about Israel as she was entering into the land after the Babylonian captivity is still true for us today as well. We also have an advocate. Romans 8, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And not only does the Spirit intercede for us, but that same chapter, eight verses later, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The angel of the Lord interceded for the nation of Israel as she was heading into captivity, and the angel of the Lord intercedes for us from the right hand of God. Oh, we have an intercessor who is pleading our case. That's a comfort for Israel as she returns to the land, and it is a comfort for us as well. God comforts by providing an intercessor. I want you to notice this as well. How else does God comfort? Verses 13 and 14. God comforts by jealously loving his people. So the angel of the Lord intercedes with the Lord of hosts. Again, that, that phrase, Lord of hosts, refers to the power of God, the almighty nature of God, the extensiveness, the omnipotence of God. And notice to whom the Lord speaks, verse 13, and the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me. So the angel of the Lord makes the request to God and God speaks to the angel. The angel reveals what God says to Zechariah. That's the same angel in verse 13 that we first saw in verse 9. And what the angel tells Zechariah is that the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, spoke to him gracious words, comforting words. The words that God speaks are good. They're pleasant. They're desirable. They're reassuring. And the rest of this section is going to amplify the kind of comfort that God spoke to Zechariah through this angel. And the first thing that he says in verse 14, proclaim, 
saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, How will God reveal himself to Zechariah and the people in Judah? I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I'm exceedingly jealous for the city of Jerusalem, the covenant city that I have established whereby my king will rule on his throne and for Zion. Zion can refer to a bunch of different things in the Old Testament. It can refer to the nation of Israel. It can refer to Jerusalem. It can refer to the temple mount and, and all of the, the, the worship in general. Or it can refer to the temple itself. And I think that's probably what he's referring to here. He says, I love Jerusalem where my king will be enthroned, and I love the place where my people worship in Jerusalem. He says, in fact, I'm exceedingly jealous. Literally, he says, I am jealous with jealousy. It's, it's an intense jealousy. Now, when we think about jealousy, we, we tend to think about jealousy as something like love gone wrong. And that's not how God thinks about it. When God says he is jealous, it means that it is the right expression of love. We might call his jealousy his protective love. It's a preserving love that keeps those those who are his, his. It's his arms around them, holding them and keeping them to him. To say that God is jealous is to say that he is not passive, he is not aloof, he is not uninvolved. He is passionate, engaged, active in preserving his people. Even though they've been disciplined for a long season, God's love is still active. Neither Israel nor we should take God's discipline to mean he doesn't love. Yes, they've been disciplined. But that did not mean that he didn't love them. He is reminding them, I'm I'm jealous for these people. Though they've been under discipline for 70 years, it has not removed my covenantal love for them. I still want them. They're still mine. God provides comfort by jealously loving, preserving, being faithful to keep his promises to his people. It's true of Israel. It's true of us. There's a third kind of comfort. God comforts with righteous retribution on the ungodly. It might be tempting for Judah or for us to say, well, yes, you love, but what about our enemies? They're they're still getting away with this unrighteousness and this evil. They're still doing wrong. and, 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 And why aren't you fixing that? And verse 15 answers that objection I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, for Zion. And on the other hand, also at the same time, I am very angry. That's anger with anger. Angry with anger. It's an intensification of his anger. It's it's ultimate anger with the nations who are at ease. What does he mean by at ease? They're, they're, They're comfortable. They're resting. Israel has been afflicted and they don't care. They know what they've done to the nation of Israel. And they're just fine and dandy with that. That goes back to verse 11, right? The earth is peaceful and quiet. Why? Because everyone is suppressed, beat down, subjugated. And they're happy about it. 
How does God evaluate it? I was only a little angry. In other words, they, I, I disciplined. But I wasn't disciplining with an ultimate discipline. I was only a little angry and they furthered the disaster. They, they helped the evil. Is literally what that says. While I was disciplining and I was using Babylon to discipline my people, they took it too far. We might say it this way, they thrashed when they should have spanked. You know what that's like if you're a parent, right? There are just times when you discipline unfairly, unrighteously, and you go too far for the offense that has been committed. And that's exactly what happened here. God had designed Babylon to discipline his people and they went too far. And God says, I'm angry about it. God's already judged Babylon. Babylon's already off the scene. He used Cyrus to remove Babylon, bring in Medo-Persia. And he will also ultimately judge all unrighteous nations and all unrighteous people. Oh, brother and sister, we don't need to fret. God's going to be wrathful against all evil. We can be content with that. Maybe just make a notation here. Revelation 20. Really, Revelation 20 to 22, but especially chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. God will judge all unrighteous nations, all unrighteous people. We can rest in that. Evil doesn't go unchecked, no matter what it looks like. And we're going to see that in the next vision, starting in verse 18 next time. I want you to notice another comfort that comes from God. God comforts with an ultimate provision for His people. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, again, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty speaking, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. This is a direct question to the question or direct answer to the question that is asked by the angel of the Lord in verse 12. Is God compassionate? Will you be compassionate? Will you care? And God says, I'm coming with compassion and my house will be built. And we know from Ezra chapter six, the house was rebuilt. So so there is a sense in which that was fulfilled. But I think he's thinking about something that goes way beyond that. Ezekiel chapter 10 tells us about the departure of the glory of God from the temple in Israel, the temple in Jerusalem. The glory of God departs. And even though the temple's been rebuilt, there's no indication that the glory of God returned to that rebuilt temple in 530. 532 when it was finished but there is coming a day when his glory will return Ezekiel 39 tells us verse 21 I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed in my hand which I have laid on them and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward That glory is going to be particularly revealed, he tells us in Ezekiel 43, when he returns to his temple 
Isaiah 43, start in verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face. It's just like when he left, except now he's coming. And the glory of the Lord came into the house. By the way of the gate facing toward the east and the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Same thing. One chapter later, 44, four, then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house and I looked And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. I think that's what he's talking about. I'm coming. And I know it looks hard. And I know it looks harsh. But do not forget that though the enemies seem to be winning, they don't. And I will fill my temple and my people will worship. Says John Flavel. For the comfort of those of you who are genuine Christians, consider this. As nothing can comfort a man that must go to hell at last. So nothing should deject a man that shall through many troubles at last reach heaven. Don't forget where the end is. Your comfort is that Christ is coming. His glory is going to fill the temple and fill the earth. And all unrighteousness will be vanquished and you can rest in Him. Yes, there are difficulties. But that does not mean that God is not comforting and it does not mean that His final comfort is overwhelmed. Keep looking. For his final provision. That leads us. To one last comfort. Verse 17. God comforts. With a renewed commitment. To his promises. Again proclaim saying. Thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities. Will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You notice something as I'm reading that verse? What's, what, what's he emphasizing in that verse? Four times he uses the word again. Again, 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 again. I'm coming to my people whom I have chosen. Notice he says, I'm going to comfort Zion I'm going to comfort those who have come to worship at the temple. And I'm again going to choose Jerusalem. He doesn't mean by that. I'm going to choose Jerusalem. I mean, I chose Jerusalem to be my covenant city where the king would reign previously. But because of disobedience, I let him go and I'm going to choose them again. No, no, no. He's not saying I let them go and I'm going to re-choose them. He says they've always been mine and I'm reaffirming that they've always been mine. 
It's like after 35 years of marriage, I've said to Regine multiple times, I would choose you again in a heartbeat. I'd marry you again all over again. And that's exactly what God is saying here. I'm choosing Jerusalem again. They're still my people. It's a reaffirmation. Things are hard. There's opposition from outside. You can trust. And that's the message for us as well. Very quickly, four lessons. Whatever's happening in the world, God's authoritative. He's the one that's sending the patrol. He's the one that's evaluating. He's Lord Almighty. He's on His throne. He's the one dictating what's happening. He is over Babylon. He's over Medo-Persia. He's over Israel. He's over Judah. He's over every authority. He is really the only one king and he has the only one kingdom. He's authoritative. And God will do what is right against those who are wrong. There will be just retribution. God cannot and will not be unfair. God loves His people. It's true of Israel. It's true of Judah. It's true of us. And whatever is happening in the world, God's people have a future that cannot be tarnished. Earlier I read a part of a letter from Meg whose daughter died a painful death of cystic fibrosis. Here is part of her conclusion to that letter. Peggy never complained against God. It was no pious restraint. I just don't think it ever occurred to her to complain. And none of us who lived through her death with her complained either. We were upheld. God's love was so real, one could not doubt it or rail against its ways. If I've been telling you all this in an effort to come to some kind of resolution to the problem of Peggy's and my pain, perhaps... I've been brought once again to the only thing that helps me experience God's love. His stroking. His I'm here, Meg. He's here. He's comforting. In your concern, as you read the news... As you read the editorial pages, as you watch the natural disasters, as you you endure the personal calamities, the relational griefs, God is acting. He is with you. He is comforting. Do not despair. Father, thank you for these reminders from Israel's history of your good grace and your trustworthiness. Might we be emboldened this week because of the comfort that Israel received two and a half millennia ago? Might we be aware that the God of comfort has not changed one minuscule particle of His comforting care for His people? And might we rest in that same kind of comfort even this week We pray in Christ's name. Amen.